Welcome to the Granary Church podcast. We're happy you could join us. For more information on the Granary Church, head to granary.org.au or follow our socials at the Granary Church. Father, in the name of Jesus, I thank you for the power of revelation that comes with your word. And Lord, we know that revelation is what sets our hearts free. So, Lord, I pray tonight that we will be able to hear from you and think through what it is that you're saying. And, Lord, that as a people we'll be released from some of the things that hold us and and try to keep us from understanding your great love for us. And I thank you for doing that, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. So tonight I want to talk about a woman who has been misrepresented for more than 500 years since the Great Reformation. And so what that means is if you've been in church for a little while, you will have heard a lot of opinions about this lady and they've been given as like that's just what she's like and that's all there is to it. And so what I want to say to you is can you just put all of that on a shelf in suspended animation somewhere and Listen to this story that I'm going to read to you, which is actually quite long, but it's interesting. And listen to the story that I'm going to read to you and just listen to it as a story, as if you never heard anything about this lady before and you never heard anybody give opinions on how Jesus was talking to her before. Is that something everybody can do? Yep. Cross your heart. Great. (laughs) Thank you. So uh, John chapter 4, verses 4 to 42 Jesus had to go through Samaria. He came to the Samaritan city called Sychar, which was near the land Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. Jesus was tired from his journey, so he sat down at the well. It was about noon. A Samaritan woman came to the well to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me some water to drink. His disciples had gone into the city to buy him some food. The Samaritan woman asked, why do you, a Jewish man, ask for something to drink from me, a Samaritan woman? Jews and Samaritans didn't associate with each other. Jesus responded, if you recognise God's gift and who is saying to you, give me some water to drink, you would be asking him and he would be giving you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you don't have a bucket and the well is deep. Where would you get this living water? You aren't greater than our father Jacob, are you? He gave this well to us and he drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks from the water that I give will never be thirsty again. The water that I give will become in those who drink it a spring of water that bubbles up into eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will never be thirsty and will never need to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go get your husband and come back here. The woman replied, I don't have a husband. You are right to say I don't have a husband, Jesus answered. You've had five husbands and the man you're with now isn't your husband. You've spoken the truth. The woman said, Sir, I see that you're a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you and your people say it's necessary to worship in Jerusalem. Jesus said to her, Believe me, woman, the time is coming when you and your people will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You and your people worship what you do not know. We worship what we know because salvation is from the Jews. But the time is coming 
and is here when true worshippers will worship in spirit and truth. The Father looks for those who worship him this way. God is spirit and it's necessary to worship God in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that the Messiah is coming, the one who's called the Christ. When he comes, he will teach everything to us. Jesus said to her, I am. Now, hold that thought because that's a really important one. He says, I am the one who speaks to you. Just then Jesus' disciples arrived and were shocked that he was talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want? Why are you talking with her? The woman put down her water jar and went into the city. She said to the people, come and see a man who has told me everything I've done. Could this man be the Christ? They left the city and they were on their way to see Jesus. In the meantime, the disciples spoke to Jesus saying, Rabbi, eat. Jesus said to them, I have food to eat that you don't know about. The disciples asked each other, has someone bought him food? Jesus said to them, I'm fed by doing the will of the one who sent me and by completing his work. Don't you have a saying, four more months and then it's time for harvest? Look, I tell you, open your eyes and notice that the fields are already ripe for harvest. Those who harvest are receiving their pay and gathering fruit for eternal life so that those who sow and those who harvest can celebrate together. This is a true saying, one sows and another harvests. I have sent you to harvest what you didn't work hard for. Others worked hard and you will share in their hard work. Many Samaritans in that city believed in Jesus because of the woman's word when she testified, he told me everything I've ever done. So when the Samaritans came to Jesus, they asked him to stay with them and he stayed there two days. Many more believed because of his word and they said to the woman, we no longer believe because of what you said, for we've heard for ourselves and know that this one is truly the saviour of the world. Now a lot of sermons have been preached about that woman's immorality, but Jesus never mentions that. We've got very little understanding of Middle Eastern culture and so therefore we tend to interpret the Bible from our own 21st century mindset or even if we go back as far as the Reformation from a modern mindset that was not aware of what life was like in the Middle East. So preachers have said that she drew water when it was hot because the other woman wouldn't associate with her because she'd lived with six different guys. But there's nothing in the passage that says that. In fact, I want to say in my house what would have happened is that the boys would have been mucking around and they would have knocked the jar over and all the water would have been spilled or they would have drunk it all and I would have had to have gone back out again in the middle of the day and got more water. The other thing is that the Bible says that Jesus had to go to Samaria and he had to go to Samaria because he had a meeting with this lady and maybe she had to go and get the water right at that time because she had a meeting with Jesus. There's a lot of things there that we could look at and understand that it's perfectly reasonable that she had to go and get water at that time. There's nothing to say that she was sinning because at, later on in the story you see that everybody followed her. And I don't think I would want my husband to follow after a lady that I thought she might be after another husband, right? I think I would have said, Rick, hey, no, hang on, I'm coming with you. But they all followed her. So there's nothing to indicate the fact that there was a problem with this lady in terms of morality. But she represents every person, female or male, 
who has felt humiliated and ashamed, who has lived with the feeling that they're not good enough, they're not as good as everyone else, they're not as valuable, they're not as worthy, but it isn't because she's immoral. It's because of her own situation and Jesus speaks to her and meets her because he's the saviour who meets us where we are, not where we or everyone else thinks that we should be. He meets us right at that point. Now, females were a commodity in that uh, culture. They could be bought and sold and given away. They could be divorced very, very easily. They were owned. Divorce was almost impossible for a woman to get, but a man only had to give his wife a certificate of divorce and that was the end of her. And he could he could give that certificate of divorce for any reason. She couldn't remarry without permission from the husband who had divorced her, but he could get rid of her easily. And so it was very common in the Bible that if she was married to a guy who died without having children or without having sons, that she would be given to that guy's brother. And, the, and any children that came from that union would be attributed to the guy that had died, not the guy that, that was married to an hour. And there is a story actually in the New Testament where one of the Pharisees comes to Jesus and says, no, not one of the Pharisees, one of the Sadducees comes to Jesus and says to him, okay, there was this lady and she was married to this guy and then he died and she was given to the brother and there were seven brothers and every one of them died and um whose wife is she in heaven? And Jesus talks about that whole deal. But the point was it makes it very clear that she can be passed from hand to hand to hand to hand without uh, with, without being able to do anything about it. She just given away to the next guy and the next guy. And so if she wasn't a great cook or if she'd put on a lot of weight or she couldn't have children, or she couldn't have sons, or she was cranky, or her husband found someone he liked better, he could just throw her out and she would be gone and there was no maintenance and there was no government benefits and there was no question of her getting a job. And so generally the only possibility of survival for a woman in that situation was to find a man who would take her on. And the other thing that's really interesting about this is the penalty for adultery for a woman was to be stoned to death. Now, her first husband might have, let, might have let her get away with adultery because he had mercy on her. And maybe her second husband might have let her get away with it, but not five husbands. That woman would have been dead. She would have been stoned, especially if she's a serial adulterer. She would have been dead. So there's nothing to say that she was an adulterer. Verse 4 says that Jesus had to go through Samaria and, you know, Jews didn't go through Samaria. They always took the long way around because they didn't want to encounter Samaritans whom they considered to be mixed breeds. But Jesus had to go to Samaria because he had an appointment with her, even though she didn't know it. She had to go and get the water because she had an appointment with him, even though she didn't know it. But she was the first person that Jesus told outright that he was the Messiah. She was the first evangelist. He had the longest conversation with her recorded in the Bible. The longest conversation he ever had was with this particular woman. As far as he was concerned, she was the cause. She was the cause for him to go there. And that's why he talks to the disciples about the harvest because she was the cause and he's speaking about the fact that 
you may look down on that woman, but I came to her because she is the cause and I want to see her set free. And when he does that, he goes straight for the deep gaping wound that is in her life. It's a gaping wound of shame and rejection and fear. Now, maybe she'd been trafficked like Esther was or other girls. Maybe she never had sons. For whatever reason, this lady couldn't keep a husband. She was constantly passed off to the next guy. She never feels good enough. Nobody wants her. Nobody wants to keep her. And the guy that she's with now is just obviously wants somebody to do the housework and be a warm body in the bed next to him. But note again that at no point does Jesus address sin in her life as he does with the woman caught in adultery or Matthew the tax collector or the guy that got healed at the beautiful gate. He's very able to address sin if he wants to, but he never does that with her. In fact, he converses with her as a seeker who sincerely wants to understand the things of God because even though she's been through so much, the pain of her life has not diminished her longing for God. So when Jesus came, she wanted to talk. Her heart had been broken many, many times. Her self-respect was in tatters. She felt used and empty, but she was resilient and she was brave and she was determined to do more than just survive. Now, in the chapter before that, the Bible says that Nicodemus came by night. He was a big deal Pharisee. He comes by night to see Jesus because he doesn't want anybody to see him approaching Jesus or talking to Jesus. But this woman had the courage to relate openly with him despite the danger to herself. She and Jesus were transgressing serious boundaries. As a Jew and a man and a rabbi, he should never even make contact with her, shouldn't make eye contact connection with her. But he deliberately cut across rigid traditions to reach her. He didn't feel the same way as other people did about marginalised people, about women or Samaritans or anybody else that people looked down on and felt that they should keep away from. Now, in a culture where a woman's identity came from her husband or her father or her son, Jesus knew this woman as an individual. He didn't merely see her as a supplier, a supplier of water or help or sex or money or babies or goods and services or advice. He didn't see her as somebody that could give him what he wanted and give it to him quickly. He makes it clear that he sees beyond all that, beyond all the circumstances, into who she really is, which is an intellectually and spiritually aware person. She questions Jesus very perceptively. And as I said, this is the longest recorded conversation that we see Jesus having with anybody. And she is not changing the subject when she starts to ask deeper questions about how to worship God. She's just like, wow, this guy's a prophet. Well, probably he'll know this answer as well. And she begins to ask him about where to worship. She's the first person he tells he's the Messiah. When he says, I am to her, he's repeating what he said to Moses in the Old Testament. When when Moses says, who, will I, who am I going to tell them sent me? He says, tell them I am sent you. And Jesus says, I am to her as well. He tells her directly 
what he hasn't told anybody before. And those people, they follow her back to Jesus, so it's very clear that she's not immoral. Now, the Samaritan woman represents the outcast who comes to a place of belonging as we do when we find Jesus. She's an outcast because of her race. She's an outcast because she's a woman. Maybe she's humiliated because she's been used by a string of men. And maybe her shame is so deeply rooted in never having children or maybe never having sons. But she's also an influencer who leads her entire village to the Messiah. And Jesus does not mind that she doesn't conform. In fact, he commends her. He rewards her boldness with answers that he hasn't given to anybody else. And more than that, he addresses the unholy trinity of shame and fear and rejection that has dogged her life. Now, I think I've mentioned this once before, but it's really worthwhile bringing it out again. When Adam and Eve were created, they were perfect and they were perfect on the inside as well as on the outside. And when they made a choice to disobey God's instruction and make the choice for themselves to decide what was good and what was evil, the very first thing that happened to them after that was they looked at each other and they saw that they were naked and they were ashamed. They were ashamed that they were naked, but God had made them naked. That's how they'd started out. There was nothing to be ashamed of. And then the, I'm not suggesting, you know what I'm not suggesting. I'm just saying then, right, right then. And then the very next thing that happened was that God, their father, came walking in the, in the afternoon to meet them in the garden like he had every other afternoon and they used to run to him, to be with him. And But now they heard his voice and they know they're naked and so they're afraid and so they hide. And so what comes out of that then is that because they've got shame and fear in their life, they're no longer able to live in that perfect place and so they have to leave and that's rejection. Shame, fear and rejection are an unholy trinity that wants to grab and claw at our lives, holding on. And for this particular woman, shame and fear and rejection was always there with her. But you think the thing about that is that Jesus doesn't condemn us in our brokenness. When he spoke to that woman and he said, go and get your husband, it wasn't like, you know, a sword fight, like I've heard you know, Jesus kind of won that, you know, touche kind of thing, um, you know, like a, a fencing match. It wasn't like, yeah, I know you haven't got a husband. Yeah, well, see, I knew that. It, it's not like that. He says, go and, go and get your husband because he knows that she knows that it all revolves around what man she's associated with. And so she probably looks down and she's like, I don't have a husband. But he doesn't say to her, yeah, I knew that. He says, yeah, I know that. I know the pain in your life and in your heart for your situation. I, I know how it feels to you. I understand the shame that has enveloped you for all the days of your life. I know that the guy that you're with won't even dignify your relationship by marrying you. I understand that through a long list of relationships that didn't work out the way you hoped and the way you dreamed, you've been devastated. I know you feel humiliated because nobody wants you, that somehow there's something intrinsically wrong with you as a woman or as a person because nobody wants you. 
But the truth of it is, that's not right. What's wrong in the way that human beings relate with each other is that we relate out of this whole unholy trinity of shame and fear and rejection and therefore it affects all our relationships. Now this is the most amazing thing that I'm about to tell you. It's just astonishing. Jesus never knew shame for himself. No matter how much people tried to heap it on him, a rabbi healing someone on Sunday or picking the grain on the Sabbath day or not washing his hands well enough or having the temerity to call God his father or being spread naked on a cross in front of everyone or dying on, on a, a criminal's cross. But this is the point. When shame isn't operating in you, it doesn't stick when people try to smear it on you. It just rolls off. When shame isn't in you, it doesn't stick when people try to smear it on you. And not only that, and this is even more relevant, people who aren't carrying shame don't shame other people either. People who aren't carrying shame don't try to smear shame on other people. And think about that next time you hear somebody being really judgmental and let yourself, or if Maybe. I mean, there's been many times when I've been really judgmental, but what I've been doing has been judging myself. And so you try and point at someone else, but it's the issues in your own heart. And so we don't shame. Jesus didn't shame other people, no matter how much he didn't agree with what they did. The vilifying and shaming and hatred that pours out of people who disagree, even in churches, is in direct opposition to the way that Jesus treated people. We follow Jesus, but sometimes we just like, oh, these are the rules, and if you're not following the rules, I don't even know if you can even be a Christian. I mean, that that's I've heard that said. I've heard that said. And so he didn't agree with the tax collector, Matthew, and he didn't agree with the woman in adultery, but he treated them with so much respect and so much dignity, and those are two gifts that every person should receive from a Christian. See, condemnation came when sin came into the world, but Jesus came to set us free from sin and from condemnation, meaning that shame doesn't, doesn't belong in our lives. It shouldn't be there, and it can be removed in the way that it was removed from the Samaritan woman. We don't know this lady's name, but the Eastern Orthodox Church called her Fortina. Fortina. And it's just the most amazing name. It means the enlightened one. Our ancient manuscript says that she spread the good news of Jesus Christ so effectively that she was described by the apostles or by the church fathers as a title which means equal to the apostles, which is a very rare title given to very few people over the centuries. Tradition said that she brought so many people to, to Jesus that Nero had her tortured and she died a martyr. But this woman, whom the Western church in the last several hundred years has looked down on as an immoral woman, in the Eastern Orthodox tradition has her own feast day and is revered as the very first evangelist. She's given so much honour. It was the Reformation, during the Reformation, that she began to be branded as promiscuous because of Western mindsets, 
which conveniently forgot that women were chattels in those days and they got stoned to death if they committed adultery. But don't get me started on that. So Jesus wasn't concerned about her backstory. He was only concerned with her future and, he was con and he's only concerned with your future. So he wants to heal your past so that you don't have to carry the baggage around anymore, shame and fear and rejection, because none of those things belong to the Christian. Jesus set us free from that. Now, a number of years ago, there was a, a movie out with, um, and Russell Crowe was the star, and it was called A Beautiful Mind. Has anybody seen that movie? So it's a really interesting movie about it. It's a true story too, and it's about a guy that was in this um, think tank during the war, and he's like really, really bright. But he also was mentally ill. But he was brilliant. Both of those things together, and he he married this lady, and so he had people in his life that weren't really true. They they were he had a, specifically the movie talks about a friend that he had, a young guy, about as old as you, and a little girl who was about eight, and an enemy. And so these three came and talked to him often. And he was put on medication to sort of help him get away from that. But medication in those days for that kind of thing was very, very, it was very harsh. And so he, he just basically became a non-person. It was very difficult for him. And so he decided to go off the medication. But when he went off the medication, he put his family in danger because he couldn't tell the difference between what he was imagining and what was really true. And so in the end, this is what he did. He, he brings these three people together, the enemy, the little girl and the friend. And he says to them, I am never going to speak to you again. I'm never going to interact with you again. I'm never going to have another conversation with any of you again. And so a number of years later, you just see he's walking along with somebody or other and um, the person says, are they still there? And he, he looks to the side and sort of like over where that door is, there, those three are walking along adjacent to him and he looks at them and they look at him and he says, yeah, they're still there. And then at another point, somebody says to him, how do you tell the difference between the person that you've imagined and, and real people? And he said, this is, this is the way. The person, the people that I imagine never get any older. They stay that same age. Now, this is what I want to say to you about shame and fear and rejection. It's always there. If we make a decision not to speak to it, not to entertain it, not to talk with it, not to relate with it, not to make our decisions based on the fact that we've been rejected or that we're afraid or that we feel shame. It won't make it go away. But what it will do is put it over there because we're not interacting with it. It gets less and less ability to inform our decisions and shape our lives. The other thing about it is, it never gets any older. Like when you were in the playground and they said, they don't want to play with you, they think you're stupid and ugly and fat, it will still say that same thing. Where You could be on the board of half a dozen companies and, and it will still say, they don't want to be with you, they think you're stupid and ugly and fat. They, there's, a, there's something about shame and fear and rejection that repeats and repeats and repeats all the same things but just based into our own context where we are now. But it's always there. It's always going to come. And so for each one of us there has to come this decision, I'm not going to pay attention to that. 
It's always going to say, you, you, they think you're stupid. They think, you know, do you think you can, you know, do you think you can organise that? Do you think that you're able to write this? Do you think you're able to lead that? No, you can't lead it. Everybody knows that you can't lead it. They're just not telling it to you. It will always say the same things to you. So what we have to do is make a decision not to interact with it anymore. But not interacting with those three things, shame and fear and rejection, won't make them disappear, but it will take away their impact and their power and their ability to shape. Because as soon as we get down in the basement and start digging holes about how terrible we feel, all it does is just accumulate. But if we're just like, it feels like rejection, but I'm not going to take it as that. I'm going to continue on as if there was no rejection or I'm going to continue on as if there were no shame. I'm going to bring it to the Lord and talk to the Lord about it. Maybe talk to your friend about it, but don't interact with the thing and don't invite it for coffee and sit down and talk to it and, and um, fill yourself up with it. Now, Jesus loved Fatina as she was and he loves us as we are. He understands what's behind the headlines of our stories and he wants to help us get rid of that unholy trinity and he wants to allow us, like Fortina, to see God, to see ourselves as God sees us. And so any encounter with Jesus can change us forever. It happened to me. I was forever changed. It didn't happen immediately. But when I met Jesus, I knew I was in an Anglican church. All I the only reason I was there was because I wanted to adopt a baby, and they that and I'd gone to the Anglican system, and they had said to me, "You have to be a Christian." And I said, "What is a Christian?" And they said, "Now, not all Anglicans do this, right? Understand? This was the adoption lady. She said, "All you have to do is go to church at least once a month," and I wanted to go to church more than that. And so I lied and told all my friends that I had to go to church every week if I was going to get this baby. And so, but I remember, and I didn't know that you couldn't take communion either if you hadn't been confirmed. And so I'm taking communion. I'm waiting for communion. And I saw this, like this dark road, and then there was a fork in the road. And I felt like I could cry every time I tell this. I, I just felt like I had a choice now. I didn't know Jesus died to forgive me from all my sins. I'd heard that from a religious point of view, but I didn't really understand that. I didn't know what it was to be a Christian. Nobody told me how to say the sinner's prayer. I just said to the Lord, I'm going to follow you for the rest of my life. And I have. And there were times when I was afraid that maybe I wouldn't be able to keep following next year. But look, I'm still here. And in that time... He just kept on dealing with the shame and the fear and the rejection that I was living with. And I just want to tell you, maybe it's not entirely eradicated, but it's not something I live with anymore. It walks over there. And sometimes I look at it and sometimes it looks at me. But you know what? It has no power to shape my life. And I, I believe we've all got our stories, the ones that other people make judgments on our life about, deciding what sort of person I am based on the idea of what my story means. Some people make decisions about who I am based on what I've done or what's been done to me. But Jesus knows you 
and he knows where it all fits in and he doesn't make the judgments that other people make or that we pass on ourselves. And there are things that we remember with shame or fear. We reject ourselves. We hate ourselves because of our stories. But Jesus knows the backstory. He doesn't just know the what. He knows the why. And it's the reason that he keeps going out of his way into places that other people won't venture to meet up with us because he wants us to know that he understands us and that he doesn't write us off even though we've written ourselves off or other people have written us off. And it's vital to grasp that because when condemnation drives us to just keep repeating the same behaviour, but when we get a revelation that Jesus doesn't condemn us, we stop condemning ourselves and when that happens, we stop condemning other people. And this is the most amazing thing about that because when that happens in our lives and we dealt with the shame and we've dealt with the fear, let me say dealing with, not dealt with, dealing with those things so they're away, we become a well where other people can encounter Jesus. So in the same way that Jesus met that Samaritan woman at the well, we become the well. And people who are exhausted and broken and shame-filled and overwhelmed, they can meet Jesus when they meet us. They can be refreshed all over our cities and our towns, in our workplaces and our shopping malls and our clubs and pubs and bars and play areas and schools and streets. We can be wells where other people meet the one who doesn't condemn them, who knows it all but doesn't condemn them. And so for us, each one of us, when we meet someone who's exhausted and thirsty, whose shame and fear and rejection has caused them to act in ways that you don't identify with, don't join in the world and in religion by condemning them and pointing the finger at them and tell them that they need to get clean before they can get saved. Don't do that. Become the well where people can meet the one that you met, the one that will never condemn them and will not condemn you. Because as Jesus deals with the shame and the fear and the rejection on a daily basis in our lives, we become a well where other people can find freedom and the freshness that we live in instead of the, the condemnation that religion would want to bring. And so, Father, I pray that you would help us get this. Lord, that you would help us understand that your power and your presence, if we just bring it back to you, if we, if we don't retire in shame and be afraid to pray and ask you to, to set us free in this area because it's the 30th time or the 500th time that we've asked. But, Lord, that if we can just go back to you again and lift it to you again and say, Lord, I am ashamed I am afraid. I feel rejection. I don't feel like I belong. I don't know how to do the thing, Lord, that you by your spirit will be able to lift that out of us. And Lord, that we will have in our own hearts an ambition not to be famous and important, but to be a well where, where people can meet you and where they will be refreshed and where they will be set free and where they will be delivered from shame and condemnation and fear and rejection and where they can go out and begin to liberally bring springs of living water to other people. Father, we ask you for it. Lord, we 
know that by ourselves, we don't have that thing. But Lord, as we draw from you, you said that you will cause in us rivers, springs, fountains of living water to spring up and pour out. And so, Father, we we thank you for that, Lord, and we believe you for it. And, Father, we thank you that every day we see that taking place. And so, Lord, we we yield ourselves to you that you will that you will do that and you'll make all the difference in us and through us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to our Sunday podcast. If you enjoyed it, either subscribe or follow on the podcast app that you use to keep up to date on when our next Sunday podcast gets released. Have a safe and blessed week.